Hey everyone, this is Mike Skinner. I want to welcome you to the sermon podcast for Sweetwater Christian Church. We are glad that you are interested in joining us as we follow Christ. If you'd ever like to support our ministry financially or just learn more about us, head on over to sweetwaterchristian.org. Thanks and God bless. Amen. Well, it is a somewhat sad day for me because we're wrapping up our Sanctify Your Spotify sermon series which, which means I can't really legitimately say anymore that listening to music is sermon prep. Uh, but it's a, great, it's a great little handful of weeks here um, where someone walks by the office and is like, is he just sitting there listening to music? And I'm like, I'm preparing for the Word of God, okay? If you would let me get my sermon ready. Um, we are jumping back into Jonah, or not back in, we did do it a few years ago. We're jumping into Jonah uh, next week and walking through Jonah for the season of Lent. And so I'm really looking forward to that. Can't wait to invite you to look through the book of Jonah with me uh, and have lots of great things to share uh, as we go on that journey together. But one more week of Sanctify Your Spotify. Now this is very much different than what we normally do here at the church. Um, If you weren't around for the last times we did it uh, many years ago, um, it's really, really different from what we have normally done here. And there's an aspect of it that even I kind of feel like a little gimmicky, okay? Like, uh, you know, what are we doing? Uh, you know, my kind of um, personal preference is a little less flash, you know, and just uh, more scripture and theology and that kind of a thing. Um, but I do think um, that in a, a series like this, um, there are some, some positives beyond just something that's interesting and different. Um, I think for a kingdom person, for a Christian um, who is dwelling richly in Christ, who is setting their their minds on heavenly things, that um, it is probably or should be the case that when we're listening to music or when we're watching movies or when we're people watching at the mall, um, there are things coming into our mind and into our hearts um, from Scripture and um, from conversations with other believers, and we're integrating our faith into all of our life, and we're noticing similarities, and we're noticing differences. Um, I think this is a part of um, living as a disciple in our world. The fancy word for this, you, you might call it exegeting the culture, right? We, we exegete the scriptures, which is we interpret them. We try to find out what they mean, um, but we, we do that with the world around us as well. What does it mean um, that we're expressing this desire? What does it mean that we're participating in this rhythm and routine? And then how does that match up to what we've been called to in Christ? And so um, I audibled for this last week. Uh, if you remember when we started, I said there are two rules. I have to like the song. And it has to make me want to talk uh, about Jesus. And so I couldn't guarantee you'd like any of the songs, but I could guarantee that I would. And uh, it would inspire me to uh, reflect theologically. Um, and actually, Tuesday, I was uh, listening to my um, Spotify app, and it was just playing some random songs. And a song came on that I'd never heard before since I've learned that it's pretty popular. And I thought, I'm going to do that. And it's kind of a pop radio song. I found out upon research it's a country artist, and so we're really diversifying now this morning. And I promise you I will make no country music jokes, okay? Um, but we've got some country music. You can decide if it's country or not. The artist herself is country. Um, our last track um, for Sanctify or Spotify. Now, today's artist, you'll have a handout of lyrics around you. It's Marin Morris. Anyone familiar with Marin Morris? Yeah, pretty popular. Dan's favorite artist. Uh, she's got a poster, a couple posters actually in their house. Um, she's an American singer, songwriter. She's from Abilene uh, here in Texas, and she's actually performing uh, in Houston in March. And so 
if you buy your tickets with code Mike S, I'll get a little kickback from that. Um, very, very popular uh, and talented. Uh, she had a debut album in 2015 that peaked at number five on the Billboard charts. Um, she had like 17 nominations for Grammys and won one in 2015. Um, in 2018, she won Top Country Female Artist at the Billboard Music Awards. So it shows a little bit how out of touch I am that I just found out about her a couple days ago. Um, the song that we will be looking at this morning and using as a launch pad uh, to reflect theologically and scripturally is called The Bones. Um, and this is a song uh, that came out in 2019, but it's picked up some steam, it seems, in terms of popularity in the last couple of weeks. So on February 15th this year, not too long ago, um, it became number one on the country airplay chart, and now it's on its second week straight at number one. And so uh, I texted one of my friends about the song I was doing this morning, and they were like, that's the most overplayed song in the world right now, which it sounds like it may be, because it's been uh, two weeks in a row number one here. It was the first time I heard it, um, and uh, it might be the 30th time you hear it. I'm not sure. Um, but we're going to listen to it. We'll watch the music video. This is The Bones by Marin Morse, and I uh, hope you enjoy. As said in an interview that she wrote the song one day talking to a friend of hers, and they were both reflecting on relationships that they were in at the time and the graciousness that they had found in their partner. She, I think, was engaged and is now married to the, that gentleman, and they were chatting back and forth and talking about the kind of unique joy that you feel when you find someone like this who, who is going to be able to stick with you through thin, uh, tough and thin, through, through the, the hard times and the good times. Um, and, and so she uses this analogy of uh, the bones of a house, uh, the foundation. Um, the bones don't matter. Um, uh, the house don't fall when the, the bones are good. She talks about how it might rain there might be cracks in the foundation. The storm might be coming. Wind will blow right over, but the house don't fall when the bones when the bones are good. I'm guessing most of us have had a time in our life or a person where we've experienced this, where we've thought we've had a, a connection so strong that a foundation's been built that's going to be able to hopefully at least see us through whatever might come our way. At the same time, I think just because we live in a fallen world, in a world where sin is still very much around us, we've probably experienced the opposite just as much, if not more. We've seen foundations with cracks in them. We've seen paint peel and glass shatter and the foundation not hold up too well. Lindsay and I became homeowners a few years ago, and we learned a lot about foundation and uh, how important this is. You know, there's a really interesting thing that happens in our house where depending on the season, if it's warm or it's cold, certain doors close and lock and other doors don't close and lock. And so it's kind of a mixed bag. In the summer, we get really excited because we're like, hey, we can lock this door and close it. And then in the winter, we're bummed because that doesn't work anymore, but some other doors now do. And as the foundation kind of moves and shifts, you, you may have heard this said, you, you may use the phrase yourself, you know, talking about a house, um, the bones of the house, the structure of the house, the foundation of the house. And, and we know for, for a house to be sturdy and stable and to make it, you've got to have a solid and strong foundation. And this is true about any relationship that we're in. This is true about our lives. We, we have to have some sort of foundation. We have to have some sort of center. We have to have something underneath us that will keep us stable um, when paint starts peeling and glass is shattering and, and the wind is coming and the rain is pouring down. 
The song, I think, is, is kind of this melodic ode to the importance of a life that's been built the right way. It is kind of a prophetic instruction, if you would, a word to the wise, that we need to build a solid foundation for our lives. That can be the bedrock we find in stable relationships. It's kind of this musical nod to the security that can be found even during storms and trials when one can rely on this type of foundation. Now, the scriptures will not only talk about this idea, but also use the same language, the same metaphors to talk about our lives. They'll, they'll talk about the different ways we build our lives and what we should be building them on and, and the foundation that we should build our lives on and, and how that will help or hurt us when things that are stormy and rainy and nasty and painful come our ways. And so in the car, the song came on, and immediately I thought, I, I wonder, I mean, word after word, image after image, I wonder if she was aware that there's just, just one passage in particular that this is reminding me of, that this seems like a song was written about. And so this is the one I want to explore with you. It's Jesus himself exploring these same themes. So let me invite you to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. If you're in a, a black hardback underneath the seat around you, this will be page 812. We'll be at the end of the chapter. Matthew 7. Jesus tells a, a parable of sorts. And it's all about this idea of building the right foundation for our lives, something that will see us through the storms. This is Jesus speaking. We'll pick it up in verse 34. And he says this, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house. And it fell, and great was the fall of it. Now, some of Jesus' parables are very hard to understand. Almost impossible, really, to understand. The disciples will come later and say, hey, can you give us a hint? Because we can't even crack this code. Other of his parables seem pretty straightforward. I think this is one of those where it's pretty easy to see the main gist of what Jesus is saying here. He compares two builders, a wise one and a foolish one, two houses that are constructed. And then they both experience the same thing. A storm comes and rain is falling, flooding comes, winds are blowing and beating against the house. But one stands and is sturdy and the other falls. This is a parable about wisdom and foolishness, about wise choices and foolish choices. And if you'll notice, the only thing that's different between the two builders, <clears throat> the wise builder and the foolish builder, <clears throat> is that the wise builder, we're told, is the one who does what Jesus has told them to do. My throat's a little dry, forgive me. The difference here is not necessarily 
any particular belief they have in their mind. It's not necessarily any kind of external regulation or adherence to something perhaps in the Torah or in their religious upbringing of the day. It's, it's strictly and solely about whether they have decided to respond in obedience to what Jesus has told them. To unpack the parable, we, we've got to kind of understand where it is. It's, it's the very end of what we call the Sermon on the Mount, which is one of the most famous speeches Jesus gives. It starts in Matthew chapter 5 and, and goes through the end of chapter 7. And, and the Sermon on the Mount is kind of Jesus' marching orders, his instructions for what it would mean to follow him. This is the key phrase Jesus uses throughout the Gospels, follow me, follow me, follow me. If you want to be a disciple of Jesus, if you want to follow Jesus, if you want to walk in the way that Jesus has called us to walk in the way, you get, I think, one of the clearest pictures in the Sermon on the Mount. And it's long been a fascination of mine. In our culture, sometimes we'll argue about you know, wanting to have the Ten Commandments up at various places. And I have nothing against the Ten Commandments. I think they're great, but, but I think if we really were wanting to have an argument and, and that was worth our time, we, we might be better served to, to push for the Sermon on the Mount. You'll note, though, if you've read the Sermon on the Mount, that would never fly because the Sermon on the Mount is pretty intense. There's a reason why, even though Jesus very clearly seems to think this is what the life of my disciples will look like, you and I often don't hear sermons on it. We often don't see it emphasized. If you were to read some books about the history of interpretation of the Sermon on the Mount, it really is one long and varied attempt to try to explain away what Jesus says, to try to tell you why Jesus doesn't really mean the things that he seems to plainly be saying. But our, our first clue to the Sermon on the Mount, the many things discussed in it, is that it is seemingly a description of Jesus himself. Jesus, his life and work, his character embodies the Sermon on the Mount. So in the sermon, we're told some pretty radical things like, like love your enemy, pray for those who persecute you, if someone slaps you, turn the other cheek. Well, if you keep reading through the Gospels, this is actually the story of Jesus. This is how Jesus lives and models his life. To obey the Sermon on the Mount is really nothing less than to obey Jesus. I mean, to come into submission to what we find in the Sermon on the Mount is nothing less than to respond appropriately to the person and work of Jesus. And so when Jesus says here in this parable, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them, we can ask ourselves, what's he talking about? What's the specific reference here? Because Jesus is not talking about just the Bible in general. He's not even just talking about the book of Matthew. Everyone who hears what's written in the book of Matthew and does them. He's talking about a sermon that he's wrapping up. And anytime I have the opportunity to encourage people to read the Sermon on the Mount, I take it. And so today, tomorrow, sometime this week, every day this week, four times a day this week, five through seven, read the Sermon on the Mount. It's not too long of a read, although it is challenging. And you'll see Jesus covers a lot of different topics. He talks about prayer. He talks about giving to the poor. He talks about fasting. He talks about adultery and lust. Anger and hatred, violence and vengeance. There's lots of ethical instruction in the Sermon on the Mount. And he ends the sermon 
with this parable. It's a very interesting ending. It's interesting to wonder why he ends it this way. If, if you were to look above the passage we had just read, you'll see it's part of a series of kind of warnings and endings that Jesus gives. Jesus ends the sermon. He lands the plane by exploring a handful of different kind of two ways ideas. So he talks about a narrow gate and a wider gate. You've probably heard of this before. You've probably seen this passage before. We often, I think, do a disservice by disconnecting it by what comes right above it, which would be the golden rule, right? Do unto others as you would want them to do to you. And we, we say there's a narrow gate, and so only, only Southern Baptists who say this prayer go through this narrow gate, right? And everyone else is in this wide gate, and they're out. And, and, and we really just divorce, right? And I'm picking on the Southern Baptists because I once was one, and so I'm, I'm, I'm picking on the home team here. But we kind of divorce it from the context. The context here is to love, to live in a, a life of love. What is the narrow gate? I, I don't think it's anything other than the golden rule. What's the small gate that very few people will walk through? It's this type of love. What's the wide gate that a lot of people will walk through? Well, it's a life that's kind of selfish, that at best loves and is generous when it can be given back in return. Not a love shown for enemies, not a love that is sacrificial and giving. Jesus talks about a good tree that bears good fruit and a bad tree that bears bad fruit. Again, two things. And he says, if you're a good tree, you got good fruit. There's evidence for you to know this, for other people to know this. If you're a bad tree, there's bad fruit. There's evidence for you to know this and other people to know this. And then right before we get this parable, he gives what's one of the scariest warnings in the Gospels, where he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, is going to enter into the kingdom of heaven. The idea here is that there will be people who are surprised that they were not following the will of Jesus. And though Jesus says, complain, hey, we, we were prophesying in your name. We cast out demons in your name. This is one that kind of scares me, right? I'm not sure I've ever cast out a demon. And so if someone can, can get to this moment and have that on their resume and still be in some trouble, it makes me really want to think hard. But she says, I, I didn't know you. And then right on the heels of this, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, who's done some things in my name is going to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Let me tell you a story about a wise guy and a foolish guy. Now, I learned this week, and I went to school for like seven and a half years, undergrad and graduate, took a couple of victory laps, and I had never come across this idea, but, but many historical New Testament scholars think that Jesus was probably more likely a stone worker, a stone cutter, than he was a carpenter. The, the word you see in the Gospels translated as, as carpenter can mean carpentry, but, but can easily just uh, as well mean um, stonework. And geographically, in Galilee, I'd never really thought this through, there's not a lot of woods. There's no forest. Not a lot of, not a lot of trees to work with. And so it is perhaps not too unlikely that Jesus had some maybe professional on-the-ground experience with rocks and stones and the kinds you would use to make things sturdy and steady and last. He says there's a wise guy and there's a foolish guy. And they, they have lots of similarities, right? They, they both build a house. They both experience this storm. But one 
only hears the words of Jesus. The other hears and decides to do them. He puts feet in action into the instructions of Jesus. You see, Jesus comparing the narrow gate to the small gate, the good tree to the bad tree, particularly this parable here of the man who built his house on the rock. I don't think perhaps he's necessarily talking about people who aren't Christians and are Christians. Notice they've, they've both heard. right? I mean, they've, they were both at the services. They, they both did the Bible studies. But only one of them decided it was worthwhile to do it, to practice it, to put some action into the ideas that Jesus had presented to them. You see, the way I read the Sermon on the Mount, it's largely about wisdom. Jesus starts out by, by talking about the kind of people who are blessed or who will flourish. And I think the, the advice, the commands Jesus gives throughout the sermon that he then does himself and illustrates are all about what does it look like to flourish as a human being. And it's, it's far different from what we would naturally assume or from the world would teach us. Jesus, blessed are the meek. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted. Blessed are the poor. These are the people who will experience these things. Who will experience the fruit of a wise life? Who will be able to withstand the storm Jesus talks about? He says the one who puts into action the things that Jesus has told them to. It seems as if the difference here between these two builders is the difference of a person who hears the words of Jesus and then a person who decides that they're serious enough and realistic enough to put into action. A few years ago, many years ago now, I was asked to speak at a professional development uh, retreat weekend for a school I was working at, and uh, I had an idea, and I ran it by Chris Henderson, and we didn't consult anyone else. And so that's not always the best idea. Usually we want to bring in some outside counsel. Um, and they didn't know this, but, but I was talking to Chris, and I was like, what if I just preach the Sermon on the Mount? And I've since done it some other places. I've even done it here at the church. Um, I was like, what if I just kind of get it to memory, had a couple note cards to, to help me out here, and just, just re-preach the Sermon on the Mount? I don't, I've never preached a sermon better than the Sermon on the Mount. And, and I don't know if Chris remembers this, but I can remember very clearly we were rooming together. We were in a cabin before that session, and I was nervous. My hands were sweating, I was pacing, and I was like, I think I should just do a different sermon. And if you were to read the Sermon on the Mount and re-familiarize yourself with it, you might understand why. Because I knew that there were going to be things that I was about to say with authority to people that directly addressed some of the things that they were doing, some of the plans that they had, some of the lifestyles that they were living in. And as I got up there and, and did it, some of those people I could see got really uncomfortable, kind of angry. How dare you? And also, it's professional development weekend. Why are you doing this right here and right now? And I was just waiting till then to be like, by the way, this is Jesus, the ultimate Jesus juke. <laughs> you can tell who, who knows their Bibles really well because they started smiling pretty quickly, right, and, and kind of caught on. The Sermon on the Mount is a, a rigorous call to a life of obedience filled by the Spirit modeling the life of Christ. 
And it's a life that holds out benefits for us, a chance to ride through this storm Jesus talks about. At other times in a classroom, I've printed off the Sermon on the Mount and put it into contract form and given it to students. And at the top, just in bold letters, I said, do you want to be a Christian? Read and agree. And would have them read through the Sermon on the Mount and at the bottom ask, hey, are you willing? Let's pretend this is a legal document. Are you willing to sign this? And it changes the equation for them. Right? I mean, it, it just makes them think a little bit differently than like, well, my pastor told me just to pray the prayer, and that's a little bit different than, than kind of seeing all of this and committing myself to this. So when Jesus says, he, he who hears these words of mine, he's specifically and directly talking about this sermon, about loving one's enemies, about preferring internal righteousness over external righteousness, about praying so that your reward will be from the Father, about giving to the poor so that your reward will be from the Father, about not just killing people, congratulations, but, but also not being angry. And not just loving the people who love you, again, congratulations, but, but loving the people who don't love you. And not just not cheating on your spouse, but, but not even lusting after people who aren't your spouse. There's a high calling that Jesus gives here in the sermon. And Jesus says, this is the foundation that my people are called to build. This is the life that they're called to build. And it is one that takes practice. And you will try and you will fail and you will try and you will fail. And this is one of the many reasons we need community. Because we need encouragement and help. We need people to show us the way in some areas. We need people to encourage us when we fall in other areas. This is a lifetime apprenticeship to get anywhere near the type of obedience that we might find in the Sermon on the Mount. You see, I think one of the mistakes we sometimes make is we expect to be able to perform this grandiose act of enemy love just because we've read it in the Sermon on the Mount. The truth is, and, and we were talking about this with our middle school group, and, and it's funny because um, when I've dealt with youth mainly for the past five or six years, I've been on a big stage, and then I just talk to them as a group. I look cute, tell a funny joke, and then they go off and talk with their like actual leaders right, and do the questions. Those are two different things. And so we've got our middle school group here, and now I've got like actual kids three feet away from me, and they're like, I don't know anything that you're saying, and they're asking me questions. I'm like, I don't know how to answer that question. It's a different thing. Just recently, we were talking about this, about how, how wisdom works. You know, we, we make decisions, and we expect them to pay off for us in the future, even though we can't always see them, even though we don't always get the short-term gratification. This is, this is the promise Jesus lays out for us. If you build this type of foundation in your life, then you'll be able to withstand the storm. Now let's talk about the storm. I love that this is a part of the parable because it's so obviously a part of our lives. There's two ways of reading and, and understanding what the storm is. It's, it's fairly stereotypical language to talk about like final judgment action on God's part. So there's this great storm coming one day where we'll give an account for the type of people um, that we are and for how we lived. And, and in Matthew 25, later in this very gospel, Jesus says, when the sheep are being separated out by the goats, the question won't be, did you pray this prayer? The question will be, did you 
feed the hungry? Did you clothe the naked? Did you visit the people in prison? You see, it's, it's not just, did you have some intellectual faith, but was that faith something that actually had feet to it? I mean, did you really trust in Christ enough to listen and follow and obey? And so there's this great storming coming for all of creation, this great storm coming for all of creation. And Jesus says, those who build wisely, those who build this foundation, they'll withstand the storm. But I think just as appropriate is to think through the various storms we go through in our own lives. Relationship issues, sicknesses, pain, job loss, doubts. Most of us in the room, if not all of us, have gone through a pretty significant storm at one point or another in our life. Some of us are in a storm right now. If you're not, you're on the clock. The rain will come eventually. And it's a pretty safe piece of advice to say it's always better to prepare for the storm before it happens, right? This is, this is what Jesus is hoping to invite us into to live out the instructions that he has given us so that the storm won't move us and break us and shake us. There's good news, though, as well, because even in the midst of a storm, what we know about Jesus, who embodies this Sermon on the Mount, is that Jesus is the one who calms storms that are in the very midst of raging. Jesus is the one who, in the middle of a storm, will not look at a distance from you and say, well, you should have started preparing four or five years ago. But we'll come and say, no, I'll, I'll come now. What's our response? Just to lean in. Jesus says, go in a closet and pray. And so we find a closet or a quiet place and we pray. Jesus says, love your enemies. And so we say, as well as we can, even if it's small, tiny daily actions, I'm going to choose to forgive and love. This is what I was getting at earlier about the kind of moral heroic that we, heroicism that we expect sometimes, right? I don't think anyone ever one day is going to accidentally, right, have this huge act of enemy love. The only way you get to like a Mother Teresa type situation, think of any kind of hero like this, is through like 20 or 30 years of very small decisions. Does this make sense? It's not just in the moment you're able to muster up enough strength to love the person who has perhaps murdered your child. I don't know if you're familiar with these stories. Gun violence is on the loose in America, and not too long ago there's this religious group who has experienced some of this violence, and they, from the very get-go, were showing love and mercy and forgiveness and praying for the very ones who killed their own family members. They showed up at the courtroom to advocate for those people. I don't know exactly, but I don't think they just woke up that morning and read the Sermon on the Mount and was like, oh, I guess this is the direction I'll go. I think 20 years earlier, someone burnt the toast in their home and they decided, I'm not going to say anything mean. (laughs) And small but consistent actions of love and forgiveness eventually turn into habits, which eventually turn into second nature and eventually we're able to do things that we would never otherwise be able to do. And we look more and more like Christ. 
we bear Christ's image more and more. When the bones are good, the, the house doesn't break. The question for you and I is, are, are the bones of our life good? What type of foundation are we building? As we wrap up this morning, I want to just ask you some questions that might help us get to some answers. I think we could go through a series of questions to kind of see what foundation we are working on and see maybe where our next steps are. The first thing I would say is, again, read the Sermon on the Mount. And when you read it, and particularly when you read something that strikes out to you as significant or particularly difficult, ask yourself this question. What do I need to do to make this part of my foundation? To make this part of my bedrock? And then we can ask questions like this. What, what are you willing to die for? I think if you want to know what someone really values, what their ultimate, where their ultimate loyalty lies, it's always in what you're willing to give your life for. Now, luckily for you and I, this is probably not something that's going to, to happen in our lifetime. In our, in our circumstances, we're, we're probably going to be asked to give our life physically as a martyr for Christ. But you and I are all faced with not necessarily the physical threat of death, but for sure with the neurotic anxiety and worry and fear about death, the existential experience. And so when you, when you think about the fact that all of us are going to pass... What would, what, would it, what would be worth the life you've lived up until that point? Getting to do this and getting to do that and experiencing this and amassing these toys or becoming someone who loves their enemies, becoming someone who has grown in prayer, someone, becoming someone who has, has helped the poor. What would, be a, what would be a worthy way for you to die? What would you be proud of on your deathbed? We could ask a different question. What, what's worth your time? Or what's worth your money? What's worth your intentionality? Jesus says the, the wise person, the person who's looking ahead, who sees the storm coming, They build a foundation, and that foundation is built off of obedience. Through the grace of God, by the power of the Spirit, it's built off of doing the things that that Christ has commanded his people to do. And may it be so with you and I, as Christians, as the sons and daughters of God. May we not settle for a cheap grace, for a shallow Christian life. Because the, the unfortunate truth is that the shallow Christian life at times is the easiest path. At times, the most enjoyable path. But it's the path that crumbles in the storm. But the, the path, the foundation of obedience, of Christ-likeness, of pursuing the kingdom life that Jesus has modeled and invited us into, this is a path that you'll never regret taking. This is a path that will come through for you, will put you exactly where you need to be when the rain falls. 
when the paint peels, when the glass shatters. And so as we come to the table this morning, it's another chance for you and I to express our deepest desire to be wise builders, to build a foundation of our life that's based on worship and obedience and repentance, to recommit ourselves once again, no matter where we're starting right now, to look for ways to obey and to follow, and in so doing, bear witness to the kingdom that Christ has come to include us in and to inaugurate. Would you pray with me?